Good morning, everybody. Glad to be with you today. And if you're noticing a few empty spots, it's because there's a retreat for the teenagers and their families this weekend. And they are up in near Kashmir and uh, having a good time. I bet they got some good snow up there. Um, if you have your Bible with you, please open up to John 17. We'll be in verses 20 to 23 today. And also, um, we don't have um, slides for the sermon, which I kind of like, because that means we'll be forced to open the Bible <laughs> in our laps. Um, so if you have your Bible or if you have your Bible on your phone, please, please do so. And if you don't own a Bible, let us know so we can give you one, please. Uh, I also want you to put a finger in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Both of those are in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians is a few letters after John. And if you don't know your Bible very well, there should be a table of contents at the beginning of the Bible that you can open to. And it should tell you what page these books are on. So John 17 and 1 Corinthians 12. We're looking at this prayer that Jesus prayed uh, to God the Father at his last supper, which took place just a few hours before his arrest. And we're looking at the part of the prayer where Jesus prays that all of his followers, his, his followers at that time and his followers who would ever live, that all of his followers would be united as one. And last week we began by asking the question, what exactly is Jesus asking for here? What exactly is this unity that Jesus wants? What is this unity that he prays for his people to have? And we began answering that question uh, by first defining what Christian unity is not, according to the Bible. Christian unity is not, obviously, disunity in the church. And we read several passages about disunity, which is fueled by foolish quarrels and suspicions and results in division. And Christian unity is not ungodly unity, uh, which is a unity that revolves around an evil cause. Christian unity is not the same thing as institutional unity, because you can institutionalize your church. You can be part of an institution and not really have unity. And Christian unity is not uniformity, because clearly God has made a people that comes from different cultures, we have different personalities, we have different interests, and our life experiences vary greatly, and different from uniformity, unity appreciates diversity and sees it as a strength when everybody determines to serve the team rather than to be served by the team. And one of the most helpful illustrations we have of the unity that Jesus wants for us is is found in this 1 Corinthians passage, chapter 12. Verses 12 to 20. Could read the, it, it goes on and on, but I'm just gonna read an expert, excerpt. Uh, Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, 
and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So according to this definition, unity happens when different people work together harmoniously with the same desire and purpose. And that's what Christian unity is. Christian unity happens when Jesus' followers in all of their diversity work together harmoniously with the same desire to serve God and to serve others for the glory of God and for the joy of all the people. And this unity is hard often to maintain because it requires each of us to do what is not in our flesh, what is, not in our, what is not natural to us. It requires each of us to take up our cross and to become humble like Jesus. And that's not something we want to do in our flesh. We can try to, you know, pretend we're nice moral Christians. Or that's not what we want to do in our flesh. Considering others more significant than ourselves is not something we naturally desire, okay? That's why little kids say, me, 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 mine, 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 right? At a little age, we learn this. It's one of our first words, me. It's about me. But considering others more significant than ourselves is exactly what God tells us to do in Philippians chapter 2. Being content with the fact that not everything in the church is going to be the way we prefer it to be or want it to be, that contentment is not in our flesh, But being content like that is what Jesus tells us to be in 1 Corinthians 12 here because we're made of many different parts. And even trying to have the heart of Jesus who he says came to serve and not to be served, that's not natural to us, but that is what Jesus wants to us for us according to his word in Mark chapter 10. But when God helps us to deal with ourselves first, When he helps us to humble our own hearts, to deal with my issues first, and to submit to his desire for unity, then the experience of harmony of the Holy Spirit happens, okay? That's when it happens. And it is a sweet thing, if you've ever been part of it, to be part of a team or a ministry or a church that is working together in harmony, We're going to read this passage from John 17. Before we do that, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we we just thank you for loving broken people like us. And we thank you for coming to earth so that we would not stay broken forever. You went to the cross for us and were broken on the cross so that our lives, our spirits might be repaired and restored and made new by the power of your life, your death, and your resurrection on our behalf. And uh, this is your word, 
that we're reading today, and as we read it, we ask that you would please work in our hearts and minds to understand what this unity is that you want for us, and we ask you to help us want it. Help us, Lord, to want the unity that you want. Please help us learn how to be peacemakers and encouragers and how to pursue unity in your body so that you are glorified here and in our lives and so that we would be blessed. I pray, God, for those who are sick here and those who can't make it today, be with them. Please watch over the children next door. Watch over the teenagers and families as they return from the winter retreat. Keep them safe, please. Please protect all of us from the evil one today. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's go ahead and read Jesus' prayer to God the Father in John 17, 20-23. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It's the word of God. So remember, we're asking four questions about this part of Jesus' prayer. We're asking, first of all, uh, what is this Christian unity that Jesus prays for? And then we're asking, why should we eagerly pursue Christian unity? And third, what are the results of Christian unity? And fourth, how can I play my part in pursuing Christian unity. And so far, uh, we've answered the first half of the first question, uh, which is, what is this Christian unity that Jesus prays for? And I would say this is a concise definition, that Christian unity is when all the diverse members of Jesus' body work together in harmony with one heart and purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. And today I want to finish answering the first question by looking at three biblical trademarks of Christian unity. Three biblical trademarks of Christian unity. God says that Christian unity is a unity of one faith. The Christian unity is a unity of the Holy Spirit. And Christian unity is a unity in Jesus Christ. So let's take those one at a time. First, Christian unity is a unity of one faith because true Christians believe the same gospel or good news about Jesus. Christians unite around a shared theology or belief about God. And like we talked about last week, Christian unity isn't about uh, being united around any random message. It's about being united around the message of God, being around, uh, uh, revolving around his message. And, and the heart of this gospel which Dylan prayed, is that God, seeing our helplessness, seeing that we chose to rebel against him, seeing our brokenness, seeing our hopelessness in death 
and in bondage to sin. Even though we turned away from him, he did not turn from us. And we could not fix our problem ourselves. And the only way for you not to go to hell and for me not to go to hell is if God suffered his own wrath on our behalf. And so the heart of the gospel, what, why wrath? Because we've rebelled. And when you rebel against the most perfect, awesome, holy, just being in the entire universe whose name is holy, that is the righteous punishment for little beings like us <laughs> to suffer in hell. But God who has unparalleled compassion for us sent himself, Jesus, the Son of God, to earth so that he might live the life that you and I have not lived. So that he would be a perfect sacrifice for us. Not a tainted sacrifice by sin, but the perfect sacrifice so that he would go to the cross and die for our sin, suffer for our sin, die for our sin, be buried and rise again from the dead three days later as only God can. And everybody who repents or turns away from looking to their sin as their savior anymore and trusts in Jesus alone for eternal life will be saved. Believe that. Believe that. And in John 3, Jesus says that everybody who does not turn to Jesus is already condemned, remains in their condemnation, remains under the wrath of God, and will continue to experience separation from God for the rest of their life and an eternal suffering in hell after their life on earth. And we have to talk about hell, right? We're not gonna soften out here at Cedar Home because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody in the Bible. And it's serious. But true Christians are united in their common belief and trust in this message of awesome news that there is a savior, that he loves us, that he's our God and that only by trusting in what he's done for us can we be saved and all the glory of our lives should be lived for him. And so we partner with other Christians and churches who believe this message. And at the same time, God gives us very strict instructions not to partner with anyone who does not believe the gospel or who changes the gospel or who adds to the gospel. Let's talk about those briefly. What, what does it look like to, to not believe the gospel? Well, this is one of the reasons it's important to read a little bit of church history. Uh, I was listening to a Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon this, this week, and this morning, actually, and he was talking 100 years ago about, or 50 years ago, whatever it was, 75 years ago, about the same heresy that I read this week about somebody proposing that we need to not because the scientific world doesn't believe the Bible, then many Christians would say, we've got to present Jesus differently than the Bible says. We've got to be presented with the wisdom of man instead of the wisdom of God. And let me tell you, if you're here and the message of Jesus sounds foolish to you, that's because you're not saved. And I don't mean that in a mean way. Paul said it 2,000 years ago. He said, the wisdom of God is the foolishness of man. And so, 
The gospel in its simplicity doesn't change. And it is the same message that humanity will need to continue to hear until Jesus comes again in order to be saved. Um, Somebody who changes the gospel, what does that look like? Well, one of the ways, well, let's throw out a few ways this looks. One of the ways is, currently in our world, is the prosperity gospel, uh, which you'll see a lot of people on TV preaching this, which is the idea that blessing will come to you materially, uh, if you sow a s- your seed to God or if you're faithful to God, his desire for you is to be rich and healthy. And that's not the gospel of the Bible. And that's not what you see in the Bible. That's not what you see in Jesus' life or any of his disciples' life. Um, and unfortunately, that is the gospel being exported from America to the world. And this is why you can imagine the damage this is doing in third world countries when the only thing they can pick up on their TVs is these prosperity preachers, and they of all people need food and water. And so they're hearing, I just need to give my money away to these pastors, and then I'm gonna be rich and like them. That's not the gospel. Another way we change the gospel often is when we focus on social justice instead of evangelism. Social justice meaning If we just make the world a better place, that is living out the gospel. And so let's just try to feed the poor and and do mercy projects, and then we're living out the gospel. But the problem is that's not the gospel. The gospel is a message. And unless you're psychic, you're not going to hear that message by somebody giving you a $5 bill. Okay? Now, what I, what I mean is this. We as Christians need to do both. We need to serve the, the poor, the needy, and preach the gospel at the same time. We, they go hand in hand together, okay? Um, but they can't, but our social action cannot replace the proclamation of the gospel. And then also, Paul warns about those who would change or add to the gospel and when you have people knock on your door, these are people who have changed and added to the gospel um, and who actually do not believe the same gospel. If, if, if somebody knocks on your door, <laughs> and a lot of times what you need to do if you want to get the conversation moving is to say, I believe Jesus is God and I love him. That's it. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that, and Mormons don't believe that. So I was proud of my wife. I was working up in the dinner table or something this week. We got a knock on the door, and she was so kind and sweet to these people at the door and much nicer than I would be. And, and she just said, well, Jesus is my only hope. And they said, okay, we'll see you later. <laughs> and I was like, yes. And so... Um, but you know, the people who knock on our doors, they're people too, and they're lost. And they need Jesus too. They don't need us to be unkind to them. But at the same time, we cannot accept their gospel. We cannot accept that there's anything we can do or add to the works of Jesus to save ourselves. And in our flesh, that's what we want to do. We want to add to it. It's like, oh, faith is hard. But going to church is easy. 
Because I can do that. And so when I show up and see God, I can say, God, I went to church this day, this day, this day. And remember, I read my Bible this day, this day, this day. And remember, I gave my money this way, this way, this way. Yeah, but did you believe? And did your belief motivate your love? That's what, that's what he says. Did you believe in Jesus alone? That is the gospel. And Paul in Galatians 1, 8 to 9 says this because 2,000 years ago, very shortly after Jesus died, people were already trying to corrupt the, the gospel of Jesus. And he says this, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be cursed. And this is Paul who loves people, who's the missionary to the Gentiles, and says, if you ever hear a gospel from me or an angel from heaven or a weird dream you have, and it's not the gospel that has come through scripture, let that person, that spirit, be cursed to hell. That's how serious it is. Because that, those false gospels do major damage. And this isn't a, a game. These are our souls at stake. God wants us to maintain unity with everyone who believes the same gospel that's been handed down to us in the Bible. And he, he doesn't want us to be united with people who have a different gospel. We should be kind to those people, but we cannot agree with them or be united to them. And one example of of where this gets tricky is when many churches, this is the reality, Stanwood is a sweet, peaceful little town, right? And it gets tricky when many churches want to come together to run community ministries or events together in the name of Christian unity. And that can be great if properly done. It's easier to do when you're partnering with only one or two churches that you know fairly well. But it gets complicated, and maybe some of you have been in this boat before. It gets complicated when churches that don't believe the same gospel um, want to participate with you, and their leaders want to help lead those events. So if you're a leader at Cedar Home and a representative of this church, what do you do in that situation? Because you don't want to be unloving, right? You don't want to be intolerant, in the words of our society. And at the same time, you don't want your own people to be influenced by bad teaching. So you're either a coward if you're too afraid to address the problem or you're a narrow-minded bigot if you act according to your convictions. And you might stand alone in your convictions. And my guess is that the average person in our congregation, my guess is most of you are not looking at all the different statements of faith online at all the churches in our community. And I would think that most people here are not evaluating the sermons and literature published by other churches in our area, examining them for any dangerous teaching. But that is something I try to do. Because that's part of my duty as an elder of the church, to protect this flock from false teaching and false teachers. This isn't just a problem from 2,000 years ago. As one of the elders here, I want our Cedar Home family, I want you, I want our guests to know the true gospel that we are to guard and protect that's been handed down to us from the apostles. I want you, Jesus' disciples, to spread the true gospel. I want us on Sunday to hear the truth of the word. That's why we read the word. That's why we open the Bible. It's God's word we need to hear, not Dan's word or your word or TV's word. 
And I don't want any one of us to be led astray by false teachers. In his second letter to Timothy, which is an awesome letter, especially for young pastors, the Apostle Paul tells the young Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth. And they will wander off into myths. And it's for these reasons that we must be, all of us, thoughtful and prayerful about who we partner with as individuals and as a church. And I'm so thankful, really, truly, to have a great relationship with so many pastors and churches in our town. And at the same time, I want you to know there are some Christian ministries in our area and events that we will not support or recommend if it appears that the leaders of those events don't believe the same gospel we do. In Luke 12, 51, Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. That one's probably not going to make it on your coffee mug, okay? (laughs) Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus did not come to bring division to the church. He came to bring division between those who believe his gospel and those who don't. Because the reality is that we're not all on the same team, okay? And not everybody who claims the name of Jesus has pure motives or orthodox beliefs. So, in a practical way, when you are, if you are reading religious books or magazines or listening to sermons online or on TV or thinking about attending certain Christian events, I encourage you to be a thinking Christian and do some research to see if those people or ministries believe the gospel of the Bible. That by God's grace alone, we are saved from Satan's sin, death, and hell through faith alone in Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. Okay? And is that gospel, I would say this, this is important to me, is that gospel presented in a way that displays both the love of God and the holiness of God? Both. And if you're unable to tell contact one of our elders or another discerning person in our church because we want you to be influenced by people who love Jesus and his gospel. That's the kind of voices you want to put into your head. Jesus' followers are united around one message. And he says in verse 17, 20 that all of his future followers will believe in him through their word through the word or the gospel of Jesus that's written in the Bible. Jesus' true disciples are united in what they believe, okay? Now, in addition to having a unity of faith or belief, Christian unity is also a unity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Just before Jesus prayed this, he told the disciples that after he would leave, God the Holy Spirit would, he would send God the Holy Spirit to them who would, Uh, be with them and would live in them in a new, powerful, unprecedented way. And and the same is true of us, he says, of his followers today. While we are very diverse, we are unified by God the Holy Spirit who has made each of us his children, born again. 
And the Spirit lives in those whom God has saved. He works in them, and he's helping us. He's ministering to us. He's the helper. Okay, Ephesians 4, if you got your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts 11, Romans, and Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Okay. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. The Apostle Paul writes this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul says that just as surely here is there is only one God the Father and there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, so also there is only one God, the Holy Spirit, living inside his people. And the Holy Spirit is working in us. He's working in his people to shape them into the likeness and character of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is leading Christians on the path to the same glory as we travel through life together, learning to love the Lord and and learning how to love others in the way that God tells us to. And one of my favorite parts about having the unity of the Holy Spirit with other Christians is, is how it allows me to so quickly bond at a deep level with other people who love Jesus. Maybe you've experienced that. Uh, since the Holy Spirit lives inside all true believers, believers it, it, the Holy Spirit supernaturally uh, connects people from all races and backgrounds and occupations. And I remember once I was sitting in an airport, and uh, I was sitting at my gate, and I was waiting for them uh, to start boarding the plane, and I was a little bit nervous about the flight that day. And so I got my Bible out of my backpack, and I just put it on my lap and just started reading it, because that's what I try to do, and I start worrying. And, like, I need to focus my thoughts on truth and read God's Word, and that helps me. And, and then a few minutes later, after I'm reading, I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I look up, and it was a pilot, all dressed up in his uniform, and he just smiled at me and said, that's a great book. And I said, yeah, it is. And I was just, again, in this airport full of thousands of people, God directed that Christian pilot, his footsteps, so that he would walk right by me, this kind of anxious traveler, and, and see me reading my Bible, and then he, that he would do something about it. That he would be so joyful about what he saw that he would take a second in his busy schedule to say hi to me, a complete stranger, in this very brief sweet moment of fellowship in a busy airport. And, and as I watched the pilot hurry off, I, I noticed that he headed straight toward my gate. 
And he walked right past the ticket counter, through the door, onto the jetway to board the plane. And I realized, he's the pilot of my flight. <laughs> and I just thought to myself, God, you are awesome. You're awesome. And I was just filled with peace, knowing that the same Holy Spirit living in me uh, was the same Holy Spirit living in that pilot who was going to fly the plane. I also remember uh, how cool it was to go to Swaziland last year and to meet many other Christians who, who looked a lot different than me and who live a lot different than me and who speak much differently than me. But even though we spoke different languages, we were connected by the same Holy Spirit. If you've ever gone on a mission trip internationally and experienced that or worked in an urban area with people who speak different languages and you've had the opportunity to pray or worship together, it's a pretty cool experience. I remember having that impact me in high school. You know, I went to Mexico and so cool. Like we have, you know, half of us are Mexicans, half of us are from America and, and got people saying, dear or, what, Padre, they're saying Padre, praying to God and like, this is awesome. And we're all praying to the same God and it was really cool. But anyways, um, when I was in Africa one day, we were, we were driving all over the country to deliver corn and oil and sugar to families in need. And one of our stops was to see uh, my friend Michaelisi's grandma. And as we pulled up to her homestead, she came out of her little house and, and uh, placed a few nice mats uh, that she'd made onto the concrete porch for the women to sit on as we talked. And I didn't know much about Michaelisi's grandma except that she was a really old, godly woman. And <laughs> you know what's interesting? When you go to Africa and you're sitting in these little shacks, broken down shacks that are about to collapse, preaching the gospel, it's very convicting in a way. I'm, I'm thankful the message doesn't change, but I'm like, who am I to tell these women about faith? That's what I'm thinking. But thankfully, my job isn't to preach me. My job is to preach the gospel, which doesn't change no matter who you are. And, and so I was kind of nervous meeting Michaelisi's grandma. I believe she was the one who took Michaelisi to church every Sunday. When he was a child, she taught him about Jesus and the Bible. And that's how Africa, or Swaziland is for the most part. Erica calls it a country uh, built on the back of women backs of women because the men are noticeably absent. And so they're mainly a bunch of children and teenagers and then old uh, grandmas, many of whom are teaching the children about Jesus. And the population in between has largely been decimated by AIDS. And there's not much to do in Swaziland except to go outside and do this, to sit on the porch, to find some shade and hope that the wind blows a little bit. And since Michaelisi's grandma is a strong Christian, uh, I'm pretty sure what she does is, I think she has an, one of the audio Bibles we gave to her, but she spends most of her time praying and meditating on God's word and teaching others about God. So I went with my brother. Now, my brother and I are both kind of big guys by Swaziland standards, and we sat down next to Michaelisi's grandma on this concrete porch, this older, sweet, godly saint, and we couldn't speak her language, and so, you know, we just tried to smile and look friendly. Um, and Michaelisi and his grandma started talking to each other, and it was obviously kind of an unusual thing for her to have two big white guys sitting on her porch. And so she looked at us, and she said something in Siswati. She said, 
uh, Michalisi translated for us. She said, uh, uh, he, he said to us, she wants you to tell her the gospel. Now, I knew this lady was a Christian, and that she knew exactly what the gospel was. Her question was, do you two white men who claim to be pastors know the gospel? And all of a sudden, I got really nervous, and I thought to myself, what if I get this wrong? And I don't want to play games with this old lady. Um, she could school me. And so, so I glanced over at my brother and said, you want to tell her? And he said, sure. And, uh, and then he basically uh, recited John 3.16, and Michalisi translated it to her, and then it was silent for a minute. And then she quietly nodded her head of approval. And my, my pastor brother and I both took a deep breath, and we're like, we got the gospel right. That was awesome. We did it. And uh, that was just something that stood out to me. But you see what she was doing? She was doing what John tells us to do in 1 John 4. She was testing the spirits. She was discerning whether or not we had the Holy Spirit in us by determining whether we believe the same gospel that she believed, the gospel of the Bible. Because there are many false prophets, 1 John 4 says, who claim to have the Holy Spirit but who are actually led by evil spirits that don't trust Jesus or submit to him or his word. Paul says another way true Christians can be identified is by the spiritual fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in their lives. This means that the Spirit is working in us Christians to produce supernatural love, supernatural joy, supernatural peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control that is done for the glory of God's name. This also means that uh, if a person habitually and unashamedly and unrepentantly displays traits that are contrary to these fruit of the Spirit, it would suggest that the person is not a follower of Jesus and does not have the Holy Spirit in him or her. But to those who have the Holy Spirit living in us, the Lord urges us to live lives worthy of our eternal calling. And in this passage we just read in Ephesians 4, 3, we read that an important part of living that worthy life is being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's interesting that God doesn't tell us to create unity by the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells us to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And so that means that God already gave Christians unity before there was ever a need to maintain it. And that unity that God has given to us as Christians, is unity in Christ. And this is the third biblical trademark of Christian unity we're going to look at today, unity in Christ. The reason that Christians are united in the Holy Spirit is because we've been united together in Christ, in Jesus. And the reason we've been united together in Jesus, uh, we've been united together, is because we've first individually been united to him. So if you're a Christian, that, uh, that's only because Jesus united you to himself when he was on the cross, okay? What that means when we're thinking about the cross is that Jesus took you, Christian. He took your sinful being, your old man, what Paul calls it, and he bore, he took on yourself onto him. 
And as he united you in your full sinfulness to him in his perfection, God the Father poured out the punishment of the wrath that you deserve for your sin, but he poured it onto Jesus instead of you. And he hung on the cross in your place enduring that. And after several hours hanging on the cross and enduring the punishment we deserve for our sin, Jesus gave up his spirit, it says, and he died. And because he united our sin to him and our old self to him, when he died, our old self and our sin died with him. That old you is dead. It's gone now. You've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And because Jesus united you to him when you put your faith in him, it means that when he raised back to life, you raised to new life to new resurrection life with Jesus. And this is what happens when you trust in Jesus and when the Holy Spirit makes you born again. The Spirit takes that new life that Jesus purchased for you on the cross and the Holy Spirit applies it to you. He gives it to you. He makes you new so that now you are united to Jesus, not just on that cross, but forever. And as a result, you are now united to Everything Jesus is united to. Because you're in Jesus. You're united to God the Father. United to God the Holy Spirit. United, united to everyone else who's been united to Jesus. And this is what Jesus prays for here in, in John 17, 21. That just as the Father is in him, and he's in the Father, he wants his followers to be in both of them. Jesus wants us Christians in God because God is our new home, he says. This is what it means to abide in home. He's our new place where we abide. We abide in Jesus now. And here's how the Apostle Paul explains all this. Uh, Another passage, open up to Romans 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts in the letter to the Romans. Verse Chapter 6, verse 3. 2.11. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you are united to other Christians because you've been united to Jesus through faith in him. 
in another image that Jesus uses to illustrate our union with him and with one another is this image of the vine and the branches that we've studied some in John 15. Jesus says that he is the vine and his followers are the branches. Because of our faith in him, the eternal life and love and Holy Spirit that flows through him is now the same eternal life and love and Holy Spirit that flows through his followers. And together, we are totally dependent on the life and power of the vine, Jesus, to give us life and to sustain us. And just as we are united to Jesus the vine, we are united to one another. And so when the Lord urges us through Paul in Ephesians 4 to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, he's telling us to work hard in this life to be what he's already made us into spiritually. He's telling us work hard to forgive one another and to be reconciled with one another because those actions of unity express what's already happened to you in Christ, in the spiritual realm. Jesus is telling us that as much as it is up to us, pray that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives together. And his will for us on earth is to live in harmony together in the same way that he's brought us together in the spiritual realms. And so, the three biblical trademarks of Christian unity we've looked at today is that Christian unity is a unity of one faith, it's a unity of one Holy Spirit, and it is a unity in Jesus Christ because we've been united to him through faith. And these three trademarks add more depth to our understanding of true Christian unity, which again happens when all the diverse members of Jesus' body work together in harmony with one heart and one purpose by the power of the Holy Spirit. So next time we'll move on to the second question about Jesus' prayer, which is why should we eagerly pursue this? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word uh, that you have given to us. We thank you for these glorious truths, God, that you united your church yourself to you on the cross, that you put our sin to death, that you rose again and you tell us if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and put our trust in you, we will be saved. My prayer, Lord, is that for those in this room who don't know you, God, that they would that they would take this offer of peace and life in you and that they would turn to you and give their lives to you, God. That they would trust you, Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, God, help us to not just let this message, you know, go in one ear out the other, but to let it soak into our hearts and change our hearts. Help us to ask some tough questions about ourselves. Am I being humble? Am I considering others more significant than myself? Do I desire the unity of the body for the glory of God? Help us, God. We need your help in all these things, and we thank you that even when we fail, we can confess our sin and know that you forgive us and are faithful to purify us from our sin because of what you did on the cross. You're living, you're reigning, you love us, your spirit's working in us. Please help us to be a beautiful bride here on earth as we will be in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.